Hello and welcome back to The Restroom, the podcast about living well with chronic illness. I'm your host, Natasha Lipman. Today we're going to be exploring a topic I know intimately, post-exertional malaise, also known as PEM for short. But like the term brain fog, I know what PEM means, what it feels like subjectively, but I wanted to dig into what we actually mean when we talk about PEM. What's happening inside our bodies when we experience these symptoms hours or days after exerting ourselves? What even are these symptoms? How do we recognise if we have post-exertional malaise and what's triggering it? These are questions I've been pondering for a while and so I'm delighted to be joined for this episode by Todd Davenport, a professor at the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of the Pacific in California in the US, who's going to help us get to the bottom of all these questions and much more. Todd is also a scientific advisor with the Workwell Foundation, an organisation which provides expertise to support a diagnosis, functional assessment and treatment in the areas of ME-CFS, fibromyalgia and other fatigue-related illnesses. To start, I asked Todd to explain what post-exertional malaise is. First of all, we, we define it based on the patient experience. It's like nothing else. We think that it's unique. This is a unique symptoms and signs that people live with that are very disabling, that come and go, they wax and wane. As the name suggests, they come and go based on your previous exertion. So a prior exertion uh, may cause profound physical fatigue. And I don't have to tell your listeners, but for those, those listeners who may be allies or clinicians that, that don't, don't experience this every day, fatigue is being nice. <laughs> We're talking about bonked, the feeling of nothing left, not able to move your limbs. I've had patients who have the experience of, of post-exertional malaise, post-exertional symptom exacerbation, and who have trained for marathons. And they tell me that the feeling of finishing a marathon is better than their post-exertional malaise because there's the sense that you'll recover from the marathon. But with post-exertional malaise, you just don't know sort of when when and how that recovery might take place uh, and just the depth of the symptom. And, and so getting outside the fatigue, it's also cognitive dysfunction. It's the inability to pay attention, to remember things short term. Um, it's also sleep disturbance. The the tireder you get, the worse you sleep. Uh, so it's this spiraling decline where it almost becomes a situation where, where some people with post-exertional malaise or post-exertional symptom exacerbation reverse their days and nights. There are very few morning people <laughs> among folks who live with post-exertional malaise and post-exertional symptom exacerbation. But it's also other unusual symptoms, you know, numbness and tingling and fevers and sore throats, like viral reactivation, kind of like viral reactivation. Uh, there's widespread body pains, pains in the joints and soft tissues. Uh, there's gastrointestinal disturbances. So what I'm trying to do is, is paint the picture for your listeners that we're not just talking about tired. We're not talking about coffee and a nap, but we're talking about profound disabling symptoms that come and go after an exertion that can be very disabling in daily life, limit basic, basic roles for self-care, for preparing your own meals or getting to the bathroom, you know, working, being a member of a family unit. Um, all of these things can be very much impaired by, by post-exertional symptoms and signs. Sometimes the whole concept of how humans break down nutrients and use them for fuel is a hard one to grasp especially with cognitive dysfunction and you have three or four different energy systems occurring, you know, sort of at the same time, one's predominating, one is rising, one's, one's reducing. And, and so I, I want to give credit to, to Dr. Chris Snell, who, who works with us in the work well group on this analogy, but I've, 
I loved it. He, he said it one day in a, in a lab meeting and I just loved it instantly. <laughs> and, and I've been wearing it out ever since. So, so here goes. So, so, so human bioenergetics is like a plug-in hybrid car. I don't know anything about plug-in hybrid cars. I, I, so if you ask me questions about plug-in hybrid cars, I wouldn't be able to answer them. So please don't, <laughs> but, but here's what I do know. Of course, you have two fuel sources in a hybrid car, plug-in hybrid. Uh, you've got the gas motor and you've got a battery and the gas motor is good for going up and down hills. And if you have to like haul people or things, and if you go freeway speeds and so kind of higher intense, higher intensity types of activities. And then you have the battery and the battery is good for sort of driving around town, stop and go traffic, um, flat surfaces. And so it's really good for kind of lower, lower intensity, kind of stop and go everyday types of things. And the gas motor can charge the battery. So that's, that's an advantage. So living with post-exertional malaise or post-exertional symptom exacerbation is like being a hybrid car with a gas motor that doesn't work or it's unreliable. What do you lose? Well, you lose the ability to do prolonged activities, higher intensity activities, and you lose the ability to recharge your short-term storage. So you over-rely on your battery and your battery runs out faster and it needs to be recharged through, through rest breaks. I think that's a, it's an analogy that resonates with patients and is helpful to sort of understand the situation here. Yeah, that's a really great analogy, actually. How can someone with a chronic illness know if they have post-exertional malaise? Is it an official diagnosis? How, how can we think about PEM as a symptom and how can we know if we have it? Often people know they have post-exertional malaise or post-exertional symptom exacerbation years before a clinician recognizes it. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, I think first of all, Post-exertional malaise and post-exertional symptom exacerbation break a lot of rules about what clinicians think about how the body should respond to, to activity and to exercise. And the whole constellation of symptoms and signs, number one, can be, can be a lot for one, one person, one clinician to take in, you know, in terms of a diagnostic process. And number two, our medical system is so siloed that, you know, if you have GI issues, then, then you go to one, one, one physician. If you go, if you have pain, you go to another physician. If you have, you know, sleep disturbance, then you go to another physician. If you have autonomic uh, intolerance, uh, then you go to another one. So these, these symptoms and signs tend to be parceled out and viewed in a silo, uh, which can limit the ability of one clinician to, to put them all together. And so often it's the patients who, who can tell us with certainty that a post-exertional symptom and sign pattern is occurring. And there are certain things that patients can watch for and clinicians can listen for that we've found that, that can be helpful. So, the, I mean, the first hallmark, of course, is worsening after exertion. This gets to post-exertional symptom exacerbation versus post-exertional malaise. Um, so post-exertional symptom exacerbation just refers to symptoms and signs that worsen after an exertion. Uh, it's sort of agnostic to time. It doesn't necessarily imply uh, how long it, how long those symptoms take or may last. Um, and so often post-exertional symptom exacerbation is used to describe symptoms and signs that occur anywhere within, you know, sort of a few minutes to hours to, to, to a few days from, you know, from the exertion. Whereas post-exertional malaise is really more symptoms that start to occur 24 to 72 hours after the exertion. Um, and so they're kind of two separate, you know, phenomena and uh, very related, of course. Of course, patients can be alert to, hey, you know, I, I realized that I had a busier day than usual yesterday, and now I feel really dizzy and I have palpitations. 
or you know, for people who are keeping track of their heart rate. My heart rate is really dysregulated. I should not be standing here preparing a smoothie at the kitchen sink and have a heart rate consistent with jogging. And, and so, so patients can, can kind of take a look at that. I think one of the things that's, that's very helpful uh, to help recognize is to write down what you're feeling, um, to, to keep, a, to keep a, a journal of the symptoms and signs that you feel and you know, the potential exertions that may have triggered them. Because you can show that journal to, to, a, to a clinician and it kind of gives a person a sense of you know, what, that, what that pattern looks like and, and not just maybe the symptom that that clinician is interested in. Uh, but also the totality of the symptoms and signs. I think it also helps when when patients prioritize maybe their top three signs and symptoms that they find most troubling. That might help to direct investigations uh, against other conditions that may be causing these symptoms and signs. As we know, the post-exertional malaise and post-exertional symptom exacerbation are diagnoses of exclusion. They're unique enough that we can start to help, you know, before a, a, a complete workup has taken place. But prioritizing those symptoms and signs can kind of help clarify that reasoning process for the clinician. So uh, a few things that patients can do to, to sort of help with help with the recognition. But I think above all, it's the it's up to the clinician to listen to patients and to assign credibility to to the to the story that the patient, the narrative that the patient is saying. I, I'll say that. Post-exertional malaise and post-exertional symptom exacerbation from the perspective of a clinician just seems really far out if you've never seen it before. Really hard to believe. Um, but it, it's not that the patients are hard to believe. It's just that the, the, the signs and symptoms are just so severe and disabling and, and so many. So I, I think those are some things that, that patients can do. I really want to follow up on that. But first, I think we've heard the word exertion a lot. Can we define what we're talking about when we say exertion? And I know from looking back when I started thinking about having to do movement or exercise again to manage my EDS, I had to completely reframe how I thought about exercise. And I don't use that word anymore. I think about it in terms of movement and movement can even be sitting up. So when we when we think about exertion in the context of chronic illness, in the context of post-exertional malaise, post-exertional symptom exacerbation, what are we talking about? It could be anything from running, walking, taking a walk, walking the dog to sitting up in bed. And it really sort of depends on where someone is with regard to their symptoms, signs, symptoms, and functioning. It could be chopping vegetables, preparing a meal. It could be dropping the kids off at school. Daily activities are exertions. We had a, had a patient at one point who, um, who loved to swim patient with ME. Uh, and she, she would, she would do her daily swim and then she would essentially go to bed for the rest of the day and she would get up and swim again. Uh, and what she did was swim and, and she noticed that her swims were getting less, um, that she was able to do less and her, her workouts were less intense and she was decreasing her distance because she was feeling poorly. And so, uh, you know, ultimately that's exertion. Just the simple act of getting up and getting to a pool, um, can be, could be exertion, uh, enough. And so it's, it's important to kind of keep track of the level of exertion that might trigger symptoms because that gives you a sense of how severe um, that post-exertional malaise and post-exertional symptom exacerbation is. And so if there are smaller exertions triggering the same pattern of signs and symptoms, then you know that the condition is worsening 
And uh, conversely, if you notice that you're able to do a little more and not have um, as severe or as long symptoms and signs afterwards, you know that the condition is a little better. So just underlining the point that number one, the definition of exertion varies based on the person. And number two, anything can be an exertion. (laughs) As you pointed out, life can be an exertion. And so the way to think about physical activity uh, changes a lot uh, when, when we're when we're working with this condition. And just going back to what we were talking about earlier, about how for clinicians who don't have experience of understanding these types of symptoms, even as someone who has lived with these types of symptoms for a really long time, they're weird. They're, it, it's so bizarre that you can do something one day and then like only feel the effects of it 28, 48 hours later. Do we know why that is, why does it take time for these symptoms to start coming up? There is, you know, obviously we, on the podcast, we've talked about, you know, immediate crashes after coming down, after doing something. But if we're talking about some of these more longer term that take a day or two to kick in, why? Yeah, I wish I had a good answer to that question. (laughs) And we're we're working on it. (laughs) I don't think we're quite there yet. But what we do know from two-day cardiopulmonary exercise test data is that, uh, you know, if we have someone do a maximal bicycling test to exhaustion on one day and um, with, with the intention that we're trying to measure that patient's baseline and also induce post-exertional malaise or post-exertional symptom exacerbation using a standardized stressor, we come back the second day and we do the same, uh, the same test. And what we find is that people consume less oxygen that maximal oxygen consumption tends to be decreased the most at this um, point during the test called ventilatory anaerobic threshold, uh, which is when basically you're using your aerobic energy system kind of stops functioning normally and you start using more your anaerobic, your lactic acid energy system. And the relevance of this is that people generally try not to exert in a uh, in a zone where they are, where their legs are burning and they're out of breath. And that's sort of what ventilatory anaerobic threshold represents. And so what we're seeing is that this kind of represents a functional ceiling. Um, you don't want to be uncomfortable when you're exerting ordinarily. Um, so like I'm going to choose a speed to go up the stairs where I'm not going to be a sweaty out of breath mess <laughs> when I'm up there. And so I'm going to modulate my, my workload in order to accommodate that. Uh, it's kind of like that. So there's that's think of that ventilatory anaerobic threshold as like a ceiling for function. And what we see is that this ventilatory anaerobic threshold happens at a lower volume of oxygen, meaning that it's, it's less efficient and it happens at uh, an earlier time during the test. So people can do less, can do less. And it also uh, corresponds with less workload. So a person's physiology is just different after they've exerted you know, there's some emerging data also suggesting that after an exercise challenge, uh, there are changes in autonomic functioning uh, where the autonomic nervous system becomes dysregulated. So here again, you know, exercise heart rates tend to be blunted on that second that second day of a cardiopulmonary exercise test. And we also know that there are immune abnormalities uh, that, that come after an exercise challenge. And so it's a whole ball of a lot of things. And my, my sense is that you know, the time lag is really because it takes some time for those changes to really occur uh, and rise to the, you know, rise to the threshold that it can impact someone's functioning. 
So that's probably the explains the time lag, but the time lag is really challenging, right? So like, you know, if you have, you have a 72 hour lag between what you just did or what you did and how you're going to feel, um, you've got 72 hours to really do a lot more. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's almost like I kind of think about exertions as waves in the ocean where you have one wave come forward and then, you know, you have another wave and, you know, in people who, um, who ha are having a crash, those waves are coming successively faster because those exertions are sort of piling up on the beach by analogy. And, you know, in, in folks who, who are, who are pacing and trying to sort of space out those waves a little bit more, that's a little bit like low tide where the waves are coming, but they're, the waves are not piling up on the beach anymore. So the period of time between an exertion and symptoms can be really challenging for people, especially who are new at, at living with post-exertion malaise or post-exertional symptom exacerbation. And I think this also brings us back to the conversation of what is exertion. So these CPET tests that you ran and, and the research that's being done, this is being done on quite intense physical exertion. How can we kind of conceptualize these findings in the day-to-day -day life of someone who kind of struggles to do their day-to-day -day tasks? And I suppose within that as well, can we also talk about the role of emotional and social exertion and just cognitive exertion and not just physical? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time talking about physical exertion because that's sort of sort of what we, what we use and measure with cardiopulmonary exercise testing. But um, I think the best way to, to, to extrapolate those findings from maximal cardiopulmonary exercise tests is just to consider that most of the changes that we see are, are we, we see them with submaximal levels of exertion, even during a maximal test, we start to see it, start to see abnormalities occurring during the range of daily activities that during a test. So you have, of course, you're, you're sort of starting at rest and then you're sort of increasing the intensity of the, the bicycling task until a person reaches criteria for maximal exertion. But along the way, you're also measuring the range of functional, the range that people live in, in daily life. And those are the, that's the most interesting to, to, to me, I think, to, and to our work well group is that we see most of the abnormalities at ranges where people function during the day. So it's very easy to sort of think that those exertions don't have to be a maximal test. But I will say for a lot of people, um, even sitting up in bed during a crash day can, can be up near someone's maximal exertion. Uh, so really the whole, your whole physiology fluctuates. And I think that's just a really important key concept behind post-exertional malaise that not only are the signs and symptoms fluctuating, but it's the result of a fluctuating physiology. We're not just looking at physical triggers with this, but cognitive, emotional, environmental triggers, uh, you know, uh, chemical sensitivities and so forth, all, all can be triggers of a crash. And, you know, I think there's some good data from Dr. Lily Chu and her colleagues, uh, one of my favorite, favorite studies to, to cite, uh, where they, you know, the title is really cool, deconstructing post-exertional malaise. You know, they did a, they did an internet, uh, survey, uh, where they looked at folks with, with ME CFS and asked them a bunch of questions about their symptom experience and just sort of tried to figure out, you know, what were the symptoms they experienced? What were the, the predominant triggers, you know, considering both physical, cognitive, and emotional? Uh, how long do your symptoms tend to last? How long does it take uh, for symptoms to come on? And th in this study, the, one of the great things about this study is that it just sort of showed the diversity of different symptoms and signs and, and really the, the diverse range of patient experience with how long it takes for, for symptoms to come on and how long they last. 
And so for clinicians like me, it's, it's all about understanding from the patient's perspective, you know, what the person's post-exertional pattern of symptoms and signs is, you know, uniquely, it's unique to them. It's a really unique lived experience. And so it's, 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 on, it's incumbent on the clinician to understand that. Uh, but that also that physical and cognitive triggers were the most common. Emotional triggers were, were less common there, but less common, significantly less common. And I think this really does provide some, some additional indirect evidence that post-exertional malaise and post-exertional symptom exacerbation is not anxiety. It is not depression. I would expect, you know, emotional triggers to predominate if it was, but instead it's, you know, overexerting, uh, physically, cognitively, um, and, and that, that tends to cause significantly, uh, significantly greater symptom expression than, uh, than emotional triggers. So that's, I found that to be really interesting. Can we also take a moment to talk about what exertion can look like cognitively? Because I think it's, it's easier to understand physical exertion. And I remember years and years ago when I was, <laughs> I felt like I was doing nothing. I was just in bed all the time, but I was working so much. And they were like, you need to do less. I was like, I'm in bed. What do you want from me? And this was before I had fatigue, fatigue. This was more related to my EDS. They were like, you're overexerting. I was like, how can I be overexerting? I'm not moving. And I have found that for me, actually, it's much easier for me to learn how to manage my physical exertion, whereas I'm horrendous at managing my cognitive exertion. So partially from a selfish perspective, but also because I think this will be very interesting for other people. Um, Can we talk a little bit about cognitive exertion, why it can have such physical effects? And what are we thinking about when we think about cognitive exertion? Yeah, absolutely. So remember, um, just like your muscles are metabolically hungry structures that metabolize sugars and fats in the presence of oxygen, so are your the neurons in your brain. Um, a very metabolically rich structure, um, different, slightly different processes, um, different, you know, different mechanisms, but same, same idea. And so it's not a big surprise that if we think that metabolic deficits underlie post-exertional malaise and post-exertional symptom exacerbation, that, that we would see issues happening with repetitive brain activation, just as we would see them with repetitive muscle activation. So that, that's sort of my sense of it uh, in terms of why, why it exists. Now, what does cognitive exertion look like? I mean, your listeners are doing it right now. <laughs> They're listening to me. It's cognitive exertion. Uh, I'm doing my best to be interesting, but I'm a little monotone and I try to be a little monotone with patients because too much processing, too much in the way of fluctuations in noise and fluctuations in sort of affect sometimes can be really hard to process. So I tend to get a little flat when, when I do, when I, when I talk to patient groups um, and, and part, part of that's intentional, part of that's just because I'm a professor who bores people for a living, you know, uh, reading, watching a movie. You know, doing anything sitting up at the computer uh, combines the physical needs of sitting up with the cognitive needs of tending to the computer or the phone, you know, being on social media, responding to people on social media. <laughs> um, it, all, you know, all of those are, are exertions and can potentially trigger a crash or perpetuate a crash. And it's hard because as you pointed out, you're not doing anything physical, so you kind of think, well, this should be okay. We should be able to do this. But come to find out that sometimes these cognitive triggers are 
some people are more sensitive to them, first of all. And, and second of all, if you're in a crash, you're not really resting if you're, if you're exor- still exercising your brain. So then that leads to the, the question that I'm constantly trying to answer. Can we rest cognitively while also not just lying in a dark room doing nothing? It's really hard. People get bored. They get isolated. This is, this is kind of, when, when we talk about pacing and people talk about doing less or not doing anything, um, this is where I, I sort of react against that because pacing is such hard work. It's hard physical work because you've got to figure out how to reduce you know, your activity intensities and reduce the effect on your body. It's hard because you have to reduce your cognitive load and you get bored and you get isolated because even carrying on a simple conversation, if you're deeply into a crash, can be, can be really hard. Texting and that kind of thing is, you know, is, is really hard for people to do as well. And so, you know, how do you do it? Well, acknowledging it's hard. You can listen to music, no lyrics to process. You can watch movies that are familiar to you that you don't really have to dissect the plot. I might have seen Princess Bride like 15,000 times. And so that's like junk food for me. It's comfort food, um, you know, cognitively that I'll sit down and watch it. And it, at one point, I probably had the entire thing memorized. And it's just something very familiar to me that I don't have to really work to process. Same thing with books, have comfort food books. If there's a book that you've read, uh, a favorite book that you've read a hundred times, then have that around. And that would be something that would be good to stave off the boredom, but still give yourself something to do. I think really simple, simple games, you know, on your phone, but maybe just in in moderation, Um, stuff you don't really have to think at um, can be, can be helpful. But the hard part with games and with social media is that there is a lot of processing that goes with that. And they don't make uh, sort of low stimulation games uh, so much. So, uh, so those become a little harder. But those are, those are some general ideas to kind of start with. You mentioned pacing. And pacing is something that I am fascinated by and I'm constantly kind of exploring. It's a big theme on the restroom. What are some of the longer term strategies for coping with post-exertional malaise, post-exertional symptom exacerbation? And do they have the potential to help reduce the severity of symptoms over time? Pacing's a lifestyle. That's the long game. Um, so that's kind of the first insight. If you don't pace, your body will make you pace. <laughs> it, 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 you'll have a crash and you know, at, at some point you'll need to pace. And that's unfair. It's, it's imposed. So the the hope, the thought behind, you know, an energy conservation or a pacing program is really to keeping your body from needing to tell you in that, in that way to, to do something. Um, the other thing I think to remember long-term is that pacing isn't curative. Pacing can help improve your baseline. It can help improve the um, predictability of symptoms and signs. Um, it can help you understand kind of when, to, when things can be slotted in uh, and when you'll need to rest to pay back. It can help people feel better on a more consistent basis, but it's not curative. So I want to be really careful to, to kind of say that because I, I like to make sure that people understand that. And I'm, I'm sure your listeners have that figured out. But for any clinicians or allies who may be out there that think that pacing is just sort of like the bee's knees and it'll, it, it'll fix it, it, it won't. And so nothing, nothing we talk about with pacing, you really spend a lot of time talking about pacing, should prevent us from looking for a cure in any way, distract us from the importance of that. Those are two, I think, key insights for pacing and energy conservation. And I think, you know, in order to make it work long term, there are two additional insights that I hope will help help your listeners. And, and the first one really is that pacing is a health behavior just like anything else. 
pacing is a health behavior like trying to exercise. You know, exercising, you go to uh, the gym on January 1st, it's full. <laughs> you come back March 1st, usually it's much less full. You know, exercise is a health behavior. And, um, you know, there's, there's an entire process around helping to incorporate it into your life. And conversely, pacing is a process. You know, there's going to be certain things that are going to be, you'll, that you'll be having an easier time pacing, easier time kind of figuring out. There's going to be things that are harder to pace that maybe you can't pace or can't pace as well, or haven't figured out one thing to pace when you are really good at pacing something else. And so it's okay to, it's okay to kind of be bad at it as long as you're learning and doing your best. And, and to that point, the second insight is I think patience and grace are two really important pieces for uh, someone who is, is trying to conserve energy on a long-term basis. There's going to be times that your signs and symptoms vary for no reason at all. You can't figure out what exertion, what, what the trigger might have been. And that doesn't mean everything is bad. The whole plan is bad. It doesn't mean you're bad at it. Uh, it just means this disease is unpredictable. And, and that's part of the whole ball of crumminess that goes along with it. And I think also giving, giving yourself grace, giving, giving yourself grace and expecting it from others. Um, that's the harder part because as an invisible disability, grace is often in short supply, but, but again, giving yourself permission to expect it from others. And that's, that's for people like me to kind of work, work on, <laughs> um, getting people to, to extend it. I put out a call on my Instagram for questions and I've tried to integrate a lot of them into this into this conversation thank you and one of the questions that we got is can post-exertional malaise damage accumulate over time to cause progressive decline and I suppose that word damage in and of itself is a question to is is a word to unpack here I don't know let me tell you what I think there's no studies that suggest that damage is occurring but I do know that post-exertional malaise and post-exertional symptom exacerbation the effects can accumulate over time. And I know that based on listening to patients. And I, I really think that's a valuable, that's valuable evidence. Um, so while we might not have like a really ironclad gold standard research, you know, study or studies that say post-exertional malaise can accumulate and cause progressive decline, I think we have a number of patients for whom that's been the experience. And I think that giving those patients credibility is really important. So I, I definitely think that there is some accumulative effect of crashes, especially those that are not sort of controlled or paid back. But what if what I've seen is I've seen some people who who have been moderately to severely involved, you know, engaging in an energy conservation, you know, effort and get themselves to kind of a mild to moderate status. So people can improve. So what we don't know is the dynamics of that improvement. We don't know how many crashes or how intense they need to be in order to accumulate, what the accumulation process looks like for whom, how reversible some of these things really are. Um, again, you know, this is, as I pointed out earlier, this is a lifestyle. Uh, your body will make you pace if you, if you don't. And so ultimately it's a survival strategy more than it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle or it's an intervention. I'm not sure that we know the answer to that question, but I think patients are telling us. You've talked a lot about the importance of listening to your patients and learning from your patients and and just how much research still needs to be done. But um, and that frontline research is something that you are involved in through your work. How, how going forward are you translating what you've learned from the research and from listening to your patients into how you treat your patients? And, and, and do you have anything to say to clinicians, especially clinicians who aren't experts in working with people with post-exertional malaise, 
what do they need to know, really? Yeah, um, so that's a big question. My role with the WorkWell Foundation over the past dozen years or so has been to try and help translate the physiology into sound advice for clinicians and patients. And I think that's really sort of what we've been about. And so many of the resources on the WorkWell Foundation come from you know our work to, to do that. Uh, free resources. So that's one one area I think where we've really worked hard to translate. Since the beginning of the pandemic, of course, I've been out in front of every clinician group I possibly can think of. <laughs> Try and on every podcast I can possibly possibly talk me talk my way onto. So thank you for this opportunity to to be able to translate, you know, uh, the the research into patient and clinician facing public, you know, sort of communications. It's nice to write the paper, but the paper often is in a journal and if it's in the journal and nobody reads it, then it doesn't help anyone. You know, on the horizon, uh, we're, we're looking at offering clinical consulting services through WorkWell. Uh, more news on that. We're also, I'm in the middle of trying to write a patient workbook that basically translates some of these findings and kind of the energy system first aid concept more broadly that, that we've used to, to, to kind of describe uh, energy conservation, that comprehensive approach to energy conservation. So that way patients and clinicians have a resource to work together. Even clinicians who aren't sort of a, a lot of background in, in, in conditions involving post-exertional malaise. Um, so we think that'll help. Hopefully that'll be, be ready by later this year. Just, you know, again, in the manner of, of trying to get information out there, uh, in, in the form of these podcasts, I just, and I, I know that we, we had a, a, an email exchange before, this, uh, this session, and I mentioned this, but, and I hope this gets on and that you're not modest enough to cut it out, but I just want to say thank you for what you're doing. Uh, because I think when it comes to trans translating efforts by researchers and clinicians, you are a big part of that. And the folks who are out there doing the public facing communication and the journalism associated with that to help, um, give good information to, to patients and, and to clinicians and to allies, uh, to navigate this. And, I'm particularly in awe of patients who do this, people who are living with these conditions, because ultimately you all are going to pay for this later, <laughs> you know, this time you saved up for, and you chose to do this. And I'm just so grateful for your leadership to be able to help, help do this. And I think you just have such a unique role uh, in the the media ecosystem as a person who who lives with this and who knows how to knows how to communicate. So again, thank you so much for being an important part of my translation effort. Thank you, and and yes, this is kind of towards the end of my day, so I'm that made me feel a bit emotional because my emotional regulation. Is down. But thank you, um, I I really appreciate that. I'll keep that in. Thank you. I want to end with a message to patients. I think one of the biggest things that came out of the pandemic was a wider recognition of how long patients with ME have been ignored and have been let down. And I think there was a hope that was frustrating to many, but there was a hope that the pandemic would push forward a new era of research that might provide hope and help and care and answers to patients. As someone who is working really, really hard in this field, do you have a message to patients? My sense after working in this field for a dozen years or so is that hope is a conscious choice. Um, we can choose to be hopeful or we can choose to despair. 
And there's a lot out there that's really difficult in terms of what we're finding is a less than robust commitment to to research, to preventing new cases. <laughs> and what I choose to do, I guess, is is what, what Mr. Rogers, uh, for those of us who grew up here in the States, would, would know Mr. Rogers to look for the helpers. And so, you know, while there's there's all of that out there in terms of really kind of limited support, really discouraging um, attitudes towards towards reducing, you know, the potential for new cases of long COVID and so forth. Um, I, I'm choosing to to look inward, and I'm choosing to look at you and your show, and I'm choosing to look at the patients and the allies that I have a chance to work with uh, through many different um, avenues. Work well through long COVID physio, through um, just a whole whole number of number of different organizations, and I'm choosing to look at researchers and the clinicians who are working really hard to learn and understand this disease to be able to help people. I'm choosing to look at the social media groups that are trying to get really good quality practical advice out to patients uh, and to into allies. That's where my hope comes from is um, that we we do have a network, we do have a community that is that is working really hard to understand. And uh, I think with, with the right resources and the right approach, uh, we can do it. But really the prerequisite is is getting getting this community together and and fulfilling all of those roles. And and those those make me helpful because I think they're that hope comes from just sort of seeing the strength of the human spirit at the end of the day in terms of everyone contributing what they can, what they have from where they are, and you know, how can you not get behind that? A big thank you to Professor Todd Davenport for his amazing insight into post-exertional malaise. If you're interested in learning more about his work with the WorkWell Foundation, I've linked some resources in the episode notes. Please rate, leave a review, and share the episode as that really helps new people find us. You can find me on Substack at natashalipman.substack.com. And that's all from me. Thank you so much for joining me in the restroom. Ta-ta for now.